Welcome to Everyday Martial Artist, a weekly podcast where you'll join me, Brian Doucet, as I interview a different martial artist each episode and hear their story. Some guests you may have heard of, and some you probably haven't. Be sure to subscribe where all your favorite podcasts are available. Also, visit our website at everydaymartialartist.com. If you're listening for a specific interview, I sure hope you'll stay and check out the other episodes. A very special thank you to Topher Williams for our custom theme music. And now, the newest episode of Everyday Martial Artist. Everyday Martial Artist is brought to you by KOonline.com for all your martial arts needs. Sparring and safety gear, rank belts, uniforms, weapons, patches, and more. Wholesale supplies made by martial artists for martial artists. Visit us today at KO-Online.com. Hello and welcome to Everyday Martial Artist. I'm your host, Brian Doucette. And as we do every week, we're joined by a brand new guest talking about their life and their journey throughout the world of martial arts. My guest today is an American Taekwondo practitioner, a three-time Olympian, a two-time silver medalist. He's also won gold at the Pan Am Games and the World Cup. After leaving the mat, he became a coach, coached the U.S. Olympic Taekwondo team in 2008, 2012, and 2016, and has dedicated his life to the Olympic movement and the sport of Taekwondo. He's also the founder of Peak Performance Training Centers. Please welcome my guest today, Mr. Juan Moreno. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Hey, thank you. I, I truly appreciate your time, and I'm looking forward to, to learning more about you. Sounds good. Sounds good. So what we like to do with all my guests, I want to go back to the very beginning. I know you said you used to compete, you know, when you were a lot younger. How did that start? You know, kind of what led to that interest? What set off that first spark and kind of started your martial arts career? You know, it's, it's kind of interesting and unique because when I was really young, I played, you know, just like any kid growing up in the Midwest. I'm from the Chicagoland area. And, uh, you know, I played baseball, basketball, everything. And my grandfather used to take me and take me to local karate tournaments in the Chicagoland area, in Wisconsin, right across the border, um, in the Kenosha, Racine, Milwaukee area. And I would just sit down and, and watch these people compete in, these, in sport karate. I knew nothing about it. And I started to go so often that I actually made some friends. Matter of fact, there's a, a famous Olympic athlete that you know turned out to be my teammate, um, Arlene Lemus, was yep. from Chicago. And I used to watch her and her students compete and you know, in the lunch break, play football outside with them. So I had this relationship with some martial artists before I even started martial arts. And um, really, when I was about nine years old, my me, my brother, my my father, we actually had a break. I played. We were really big into hockey, and we uh -huh. played in the Wisconsin area because it was just a very a little bit more of a higher level at that time. And so we were on a break, and we stopped at a a local little area that was actually a strip mall, but the strip mall is back in the early eighties. You know, there was three stores. There was a yeah. hot dog stand. There was actually an arcade and then a martial arts school. And me and my brother, we, we ate our hot dogs and our French fries and our whatever we drank. And I kind of wandered down past the, you know, the arcade and went down to the martial arts school. And I was just looking in and really by fate or whatever have you, it was, uh, it happened to be a Taekwondo school. It could have been judo. It could have been karate. Mm -hmm. It could have been anything. And, where I'm just kind of looking in the window and my dad came down and we walked in and my dad actually knew the assistant instructor at that place. And we went back that night and we signed up and got our uniforms and, and that was it. I was, I was hook, hooked, line and sinker. I was, I was all in, in the martial arts. I mean, I'd always like, you know, growing up, I had mm -hmm. seen the Bruce Lee and the Chuck Norris's and the David Carradine's, you know, in, in the movie theaters at that time. Yep. And I always had a kind of an interest or a, something that just kind of intrigued me. And so to have that opportunity and that in that moment was, was exciting that, wow, I'm actually going to do something a little bit more formalized. And like I said, I just, I fell in love head over heels, you wow. know, with the, with the martial arts. And how old were you at the time? 
I was nine. Okay. I was nine years old. Yeah, back in the beginning of the early 80s. <laughs> so think back then to that, for maybe the first three, four classes. What, what, once you got into class, what was it? I mean, you said you fell in love with it, but once you got in and started doing it, what was it about it that made you want to stick with it? Well, I'll tell you, there's two, there's two stories that I always mm-hmm. remember. The first story was kind of funny because, you know, maybe through the interview, you'll see, I, I, I always was a, a very unique person, I think, and I always had my own style and, and whatever. And quite honestly, I, I didn't really care too much what people thought about me or whatever, even at a, as a young youngster. And I had extremely long hair, had long hair. You know, I had an earring since I was like oof, five or six years old. Nice. <laughs> Uh, my mother actually wanted me to have it and chase me around the car, you know, to put a hole in my ear and I didn't want it. And then, you know, I got a second one. And so it just became my little thing. And that was, you know, really unpopular at the time. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I go into the school and, you know, hear this, my hair is dark now. It you know, got darker as I got older, but I had this light hair, almost blondish brown hair, long, soft, very well taken care of, you know, look like a little baby. And I, as I'm walking in to change in my uniform, one of the guys like, no, 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 that's the boys' locker room. And I'm like, <laughs> I am a boy. And I went in there and I was like, ah. So it was funny because they, they thought I was a little girl. Wow. That's how little I was, how petite I was and my hair. So that was the first, you know, story. But, you know, I remember the first class, you know, really enjoying it and just enjoying it to the extent of like, you couldn't wait to go back. You couldn't wait to get to the next class. And before I knew it, I was literally in my first sparring class on a Saturday. And and then that time, you know, the senior student was a really big deal. Like, so you have all the kids line up and whoever's the highest belt. But at the time, it was like a yellow belt. And uh, I didn't have any equipment. And I really didn't know the rules. <laughs> I, was, I, I consider myself a tough little guy. <laughs> and um, all I remember is I reverse punched the senior student in the face and just <laughs> bloodied his nose. Kid goes on the ground. And I'm just standing there like, what? I just, I just, and then the instructor like kind of gives me, you know, yells at me a little bit. I'm doing pushups over there on the side. And then afterwards, you know, one of the assistant instructors said, that was a clean, clean punch. Where did you learn that? And I'm like, I don't know. I just reverse punch. I just, you know, so I remember the first time going in, them thinking I was a girl. And then like a week or two weeks later, I punched the senior student in the face and, and bloody his nose. And I'm thinking to myself, oh my gosh, no one's going to like me at this place. <laughs> and it was, it was kind of funny, but yeah, we just, uh, obviously me and my brother, you know, we loved it so much. And, you know, even as youngsters, we would, we were one of those kids. I think, you know, things like this happened in the early eighties. It may not happen now, but we would get dropped off and we would do our class and then we'd just sit there and watch the next class and then the next class. And then our parents would come pick us up. And it wasn't because they were out doing something else or they were lazy and didn't want to pick us up. It was because we wanted to stay and watch what the heck was going on mm-hmm. and we just couldn't get enough of it. So yeah, it really, really consumed me. Nice. Um, do you remember which uh, which system of Taekwondo that was? Like which Kwan? Yeah, actually, it was a Chung Do Kwan. My oh. my first instructor was more of an ITF, you know, type of martial artist. I mean, we did a lot of the. I don't know if you if you know much about those forms, but we the Chun Ji Tung Wan Dosan mm-hmm. patterns. Okay. So we didn't do any of the WT things that I do now or the Palgays. We did yep. a, you know very very old traditional patterns. And um, yes, it was um, my my school still does the Palgays. Yeah, yeah. We, yeah I mean, we, we we never switch to the Taeguk. We, uh, my instructor likes the the Paul Gaze better, so that's what we do. Yeah, I, listen, I, it's funny. I, I have a martial arts school now. And I'm sure we'll get into it, but mm-hmm. I I teach the Taeguks, but I personally like 
the much older forms. I like the ITF forms and I like the, the polygase, just a preference. What are some things that rem- you remember about the instructor? What stand out about that instructor? So I, I still have contact with them now. Every time anybody asks me, you know, I, you know, I say my first instructor was, his name was Gerald Cook, Jerry Cook. And um, he was a banker by trade and um, was a, you know, kind of a hobby martial artist, you know, school owner and um, just a great family guy. Like, you know, not only did we, you know, well, I thought that we were learning good quality martial arts and I wouldn't have known the difference, to be honest with you at the time. But, you know, looking back, he was a a quality instructor that really cared about us a lot. And we, I remember the school doing a lot of things together, a lot of picnics together, a lot of cookouts together. Even the parents would spend parent nights out together. And it was just a, you know, I mean, while the sport part of it, you know, became big later on, the martial art part, just the community that he built and it wasn't a big school at all. I mean, mm-hmm. the the size was very small. It was predominantly an adult type activity. There was probably, I think, when I began, maybe maybe fifteen kids. Wow. You know, so it just wasn't that kid friendly back in the you know early eighties. Martial arts was a little bit a little bit more of an adult type of uh, activity, mm-hmm. and. Um, so yeah, I, he was just a, a really good guy. And like I said, even to this day, I, uh, you know, I'll tell everybody who my first instructor was, even if they don't know him. And, you know, later on I tell them, you know, who my first coach was and kind of so on and so on. So Jerry Cook still in Waukegan, Illinois. And yeah. Does he still teach? Great man. He does not teach. I think okay. he retired oof, probably. Actually, he, he commented on one of my Facebook posts this weekend, you know, and I hadn't, he, he does from time to time, but mm-hmm. no, I think he sold it or sold and retired from his school probably about 10 years ago, but he had it for, oof. I mean, I've been doing martial arts for over 40 years, so he mm-hmm. had it for probably the better part of 50 years. Wow. I mean, that's impressive. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, like you, like, you know, you, you find a good instructor in a good school. It, it makes all the difference. Yeah. I can't say anything bad. Like I said, I mean, from the traditional aspect of it to even leading into the sport, allowing me to develop later with other coaches. I mean, he was very, very open-minded and very, uh, you know, ahead of his time when it came to that kind of stuff, because, mm-hmm. you know, even in this day and age, it's, it's tough for some instructors to to allow that to happen. So, right. No, yeah, I, agree I appreciate completely. him a lot. So what about the competition side? When did uh, kind of what belt level did competition start? And do you remember your first tournament? I sure do. I mean, I went to, um, when I was, uh, I got my yellow belt after about three months of training, which was pretty quick. I think at that time, I mean, I know things are different again nowadays. I'll mm-hmm. probably hear me reference back and forth from today's, you know, current status and back then, but yeah, I mean, me and my brother, same thing. We, we trained together. We both got our yellow belts and we went to our first tournament in Lake Geneva, Illinois. It was actually the old Playboy Club. I don't know what the <laughs> resort is called now. It was Lake Geneva and it was a, a point taekwondo tournament. And yeah, we I remember the instructor said, hey, we're going to this event to talk to my mom and dad. We got our, our equipment and we got our team uniform. And I went out there and I remember I was, uh, I, I remember I fought an orange belt and I lost in about 30 seconds. Uh, he kicked me in the stomach. I punched him in the stomach. One, and I kicked me in the face. It was three to one. The match was over. I'm like wow. looking around and I was like, and I was, I thought I was good. My instructor <laughs> thought I was good. My family, everybody was like, wow, Juan's good. Juan's good. Juan's good. And when I lost, I remembered it was, you know, nine years old. I'm devastated. I'm like, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, crying. I'm, you know, my eyes are all watering. I'm, you know, I'm upset. I'm frustrated. I don't know what happens. And then to make it worse, 
my younger brother, you know, I'm, I'm the older brother. I mean, I'm, I'm supposed to outdo, I'm supposed to outshine. <laughs> yep. And my, my younger brother goes to match after match after match. He has like four or five matches and he gets a second place. He loses <sighs> in the final, gets a big old trophy carrying around. And I'm just like, in my brain, I'm like, I'm better than him. He just, everyone's <laughs> like happy for him and picking him up. And I'm just like over there, like I'm about ready to explode, <laughs> you know? And so it was, uh, my first competition was not, um, not fun for me, okay. but uh, it was a great learning experience for me because uh, you know there's a couple things that happened, and you know my father was very my father was a military guy and is a very strong man. You know I remember he was like, "What do you, you know? What are you crying for?" And I'm just like, "You know I'm I'm nine. I, I don't even know why I'm crying." And he's like, "You know, did you? It's kind of it's kind of strange because he's like, did you prepare as much as you could?'" I'm like, "I guess." He's like, "Did you listen to the your, t- your teacher in, in the match?" I'm like. I guess. Then he's like, "Did you did you try your hardest? Did you did you quit? Were you scared?" He's like, "Yeah, I tried my That's all that matters. You did those three things. You're good. Don't worry about it." Walks away, and I'm just like, "Okay." <laughs> but I tell you what, I, I talked to a lot of people, you know, over the course of my career, and those three things really ring to me all the time. As long as I prepare properly, as long as I listen to the instruction, and as long as I give the best effort that I have, the outcome doesn't really matter to me. The the result doesn't matter. So nice. if I can do those three things, I'll, I'll be okay. And you know, I think, you know, as a nine-year-old yellow belt, that was um, the perfect advice. And luckily, I was able to remember it and keep it. So it was super, super important because, quite honestly, after that, I never lost a, a junior Taekwondo tournament again in my life. Really? I mean, never lost. Wow. Never lost. Taekwondo. I've, I lost some karate tournaments, of mm-hmm. course. But in the Taekwondo, never again. Matter of fact, a couple months later, I think it was three months later, I fought my first, it was AAU Nationals in Springfield, Illinois, I believe. Mm-hmm. And I won a gold medal as a yellow belt, you know, so one tournament I lose and the next term I win the gold medal. I win a national championship. So, I mean, I was pretty fortunate that I had some of those little things that made a big difference to me to, to propel my, uh, my sport, you know, to start my sport career, I should say. And then when did you start drifting into some of like the NASCA and the sport karate tournaments instead of just the Taekwondo tournaments? Yeah. So you remember I mentioned my grandfather was the one that would take me to the karate tournaments. My grandfather would take me to boxing gyms and the Y and stuff like that. So he still had his affiliation because he did karate. He actually did uh, uh, Shorin Ru karate. Nice. And so he, um, he still had those contacts and he told my father, he's like, you know, I think Juan needs to look at some of these other competitions. I think we need to, you know, take him there. There's some really tough kids over here, you know, in Chicago, in Detroit, in Gary, Indiana. I mean, there's some tough kids. And so um, we went, I was a green belt and uh, we went to a, a tournament in the Chicagoland area. And I think I got, I think I got third there. Yeah, got third place. And, you know, it was different than Taekwondo because you could mm-hmm. punch to the face. You could foot sweep and fight on the ground for three seconds. You could grab and punch. I mean, it was just, it was, it was totally foreign to me. Mm-hmm. But for me, in my opinion, the competitive level was really, um, really good, really intense, really, really strong. And so we went there for a couple, you know, a couple different events and, and then... <laughs> We didn't have permission, you know. Then my grand, my grandfather and father went and talked to you know Mr. Cook and told him what we had been doing. You know, asked him if it was okay, and you know, kind of backwards. It wasn't the, probably the right way to ask do for things, forgiveness, but, not uh, permission. Yeah, you know, and I'm not even sure what you know why we went there originally without doing it, um, but we did. And you know, he understood it. He had he he knew about uh, that circuit. You know, it's strange, strangely enough, oddly enough, probably within a year, a lot of our students that you know would just generally fight you know sport taekwondo point tournaments uh were fighting sport karate tournaments you know in the midwest and in area so it was you know pretty quick mm-hmm. and you know comparing the two at the time i thought the the sport karate was much more 
real than the point taekwondo because obviously you're punching the face you can ridge hand you can back fist you can sweep you know there's a lot of things you could do that you couldn't do in the taekwondo circuit so i just felt it was more realistic and and the people that i was competing against they were just much more athletic they were much you know much rougher tougher serious competitors than than the taekwondo world at that time for my level yeah so but i did both i mean i did we, we did the taekwondo tournaments we did the karate tournaments you know we ventured into in the midwest in that time there was challenge matches i mean it was old school it was an instructor from another school would call and say you know my johnny wants to challenge you know juan it you know in a blue belt division <laughs> And, you know, there was these full contact fights and they would have these challenge matches on the undercards. And, you know, I fought my first one as a blue belt and, you know, I fought a three round match and you could do everything except for knockout. You couldn't, you couldn't knock the other kid out. Wow. So, you know, I got, I got Arlene Lima's wrapping my hands, you know, like a boxer, you know, I'm, <laughs> I wore a, a fancy gray uniform and I walked in there with star sunglasses. I mean, I was like a little showman, you know, <laughs> at, at, at 10, 11 years old. So it was it was pretty crazy. And we just, like I said, we started doing so many different events that, you know, we just really became pretty well-rounded fighters and well-rounded martial arts, martial artists, you know, not just your traditional, for me, a lot of people think me as a traditional Taekwondo person because of where I'm at now. But um, I would say that, you know, my first seven, eight years of martial arts was, was pretty diverse, you know, in, in sport karate and Taekwondo. From a mindset point, was it ever tough to like, you'd go to a karate tournament and maybe forget and think, Oh, this is only Taekwondo and not, you know, forget that you could do this or couldn't do that. Did that ever happen? Or were you pretty well prepared each time? No, not, not, not at all. I, okay. I, I was very, I, I think I you know transferred over me back and forth, you know, pretty easily. I mean, I've heard that many times from other people. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, it was never an issue. I mean, and I was, I did forums and fighting, you know, so I learned Japanese forms. So when I would go to the karate tournaments, I would look at the, the board that was judging that day for the juniors. And if they, I thought they were quote unquote, traditional old school karate uh, masters or you know, instructors, I would do a traditional form to appeal to them. If I saw the board was a little younger, more of the sport NASCA karate, I would do a freestyle form or a taekwondo form that was nice. a, maybe a little bit more flashy. So I just adapted to wherever I went to me. And I say this to even to this day, Fighting is fighting. You know, mm-hmm. there might be different rules, but you kick, you punch, you move, you block. I mean, really, okay, you can't punch to the face. Okay, you can't punch to the face. Oh, you can't foot sweep. You can't foot sweep. So I think anyone that goes, oh, I'm just not used to it. For me, I get it, but I don't get it. Okay. <laughs> I, don't, I don't really like that. You yeah, know, that makes that, sense. Uh, that makes sense. Did you ever do uh, weapons competition at all? I did. I did. I did uh, both staff and also commas. Okay. How'd you do so, in that? Yeah, I mean, I just I always, you know, I'd win a lot. And I was again contrary to what most people think because they look at me as a fighter i was better in forms and weapons than i was in fighting which nice. is strange because mm-hmm. that's all i do now is you know i'm, I'm a, i kind of streamlined in you know sports specific to to sparring but i knew when i went to a tournament i was winning first in forms <laughs> i just i knew i mean barring something really really strange i was going to win in forms so fighting is you know obviously there's there's more dynamic things that can happen there's you know it's much more complex, so yep. you can't predict it all the time. I think I want to say it was Benny Urquidez that said that same thing that he was he thought he was better in forms than fighting, which amazed me. <laughs> so even now, I mean, I, I pride myself on having good technique and good skill. I mean, where I can kick and show and, and whatever. I'm 52 years old, and you know, I still try to make sure that I can kick and demonstrate. You know, and again, it's not for everybody, but it's right. just it's my thing. At what uh, point did the Olympics come onto your radar? When was that something you yeah. thought, hey, I want to try this, or maybe I could actually do it? The truth is, in 1986, 
I started entering into the what I would consider the Olympic field. And what happened was, 84, 85, 86, I started competing in the adult division in the karate circuits. And quite honestly, it was uh, it was rough for me because I was so little. Um, I wasn't even five foot when I was a freshman in high school. And I was so light that I had started competing in the adults in forms. And there's a lot of people that didn't like it. They didn't like that I was winning as a kid in the adult division. Matter of fact, they were like, oh, he he's winning because he's cute and he's this and he's that. And so when it came time for me to jump into the fighting side of it, they were waiting for me <laughs> and they were ready for me. And, um, you know, without, you know, getting too detailed, it was it, it, it was ugly. It was dirty. It was there was a lot of cheap shots. There was a lot of things that a lot of a lot of things that would happen outside of the ring. There's a thing in the Midwest we used to call it sucker punching, basically, when, you know, the referee says, you know, mate, you know, stop, break. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, you know, you go back to your lines and all of a sudden, boom, the guy would hit you. Or you get hit by somebody else from their school in the back. I mean, literally like karate kid type stuff. I mean, it was, and you know, I was 13, 14, 15, and I just remember having these like scraps. I'm talking real fights, not in the match. Like when somebody would trip me on the sideline or, or just – you know, people like pushing me back in the ring and I turn around and all of a sudden, boom, somebody else hits me. I mean, it was, it was like a movie. It was, it was really crazy. Wow. I just remember thinking to myself, there's gotta be a better way. There's gotta be something else. And in 1986, it was announced that Taekwondo was going to be on the Olympic format in Seoul, Korea. And that year I went to my first senior national championships in Olympic Taekwondo. I was 15 years old. It was in Dayton, Ohio. And, um, that's when it came on the radar. And up until that point in my life, I, I always just consider myself a martial art person, a karate person, a taekwondo person. And all of a sudden, the Olympics, I'm like, wait a minute. I love sports. I love baseball. I love basketball. I love soccer. I love hockey. I love all sports. I'm like, wait a minute. I could go to the Olympics? You know, so it was so far-fetched because I hadn't even, I mean, like I said, my first tournament on the adult level when I was 15 was 1986. I basically had two more years to, to try to get ready. And, you know, I was so far, you know, from that. But I thought there's a chance, and so '86 was a huge, uh, a huge year for me to uh, to really change my whole thought process of, of the martial arts. I mean, I really put the sport karate and kickboxing and all that stuff in in my rearview mirror, and all of a sudden I was I was 100% head on and diving into the Olympic uh, Olympic training, Olympic format, and, and doing anything I could to to see if I had a chance. And I, you know, when I say I, I thought I had a chance. I'm not going to be one of these people that says, oh, I knew it from the beginning. There is no way that I knew it from the beginning, especially when we talk later about the, the hill that I had to climb, the challenges that I laid in front of me. There was just no chance, <laughs> but it was an opportunity, definitely. So then, and talk about 88 then. What, what were the actual Olympic trials like and what, are the, what was that like going through? So, you know, I, I, I'll give you a quick recap from 86 to 88 and real fast. So in okay. 86, Beginning of 86, my instructor, Jerry Cook, and his master was a, a master named Tae Jing Suk. From, uh, he was in, actually in Highland Park, Illinois. They sent me to Korea. Oh, wow. I'm 15 years old, and they sent me to Korea. I don't know. In this day and age, you know, that, that wouldn't happen. But I have no idea what my mom and dad thought about putting their 15-year-old kid that <laughs> – I've never been out of the damn country. <laughs> so uh, also, I'm on a plane, and I, I get off the plane, and uh, – carrying a bag and this guy looks at me and I look at him and he nods and I follow him and I get on a bus, get on a train, get to this place. They take me to this university. They take one look at me and they're like, this kid's too small. I end up going to a high school, one of the most famous high schools in Korea. I didn't know. These kids tortured me. These high school kids tortured me, pulled my hair, kicked my face. I mean, I had, I had no idea about Asian culture. I had no idea about Asian food. I had no idea about 
you know, how serious Taekwondo was over there. But kind of trial and error, you know, learned the hard way, spent six weeks over there, came back. My, uh, at nationals, I lost my first, I'm sorry, I won my first fight and I lost my second fight. And okay, it is what it is. You know, I tell everybody there's only been one time in my life that I've been afraid to fight. Not been nervous, but been afraid. And that was 1986 and my second match. I get paired up with this gentleman named Dae Sung Lee. Dae Sung Lee is a, a, I don't know, eight-time national team member. He's a U.S. team captain. Not the best player in the country, but one of the best players in the world. Routinely, routinely gets, you know, silvers and, and bronze medals at the world level. Pan Americans, he wins gold medals all the time. And then they pull us in to fight. And, you know, I'm 15. He's like 27. Jeez. and I look over him, and the referees are telling my coach, um, "We don't think you should fight. It, it just you should just bow out and just." And so my coach is like, "No, no, 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 we'll, we'll fight." And I'm just looking at this guy who's staring right into my soul. And I look; he doesn't have any shin guards on, no arm guards on, no. He just got the chest protector and the headgear. You know. Meanwhile, I got shin guards and groin cup, and I have all this stuff. And I'm like, my coach says, "Can he put on some pads?" And the guy's like, guy puts his hands up to me. He goes, "No, no, no." We just practice. We just practice. And I'm like, oh my gosh. So we start the match and I tell everybody, I was so afraid to kick him because I thought if for, by some chance I hit him, I was going to piss him off and he was going to kill me. <laughs> so I just, I basically did, didn't do much and, and I lost. And so I tell everybody the story that you know, it was the, the first time and the only time in my life before and since that I've actually was afraid of a person to fight. And so that was 86. Well, 87 go, comes by. I go back to Korea again. I come back. We go to the nationals. And my mom thinks this is like a local tournament, right? Where you stand, whoever you're standing next to, you fight. Well, the nationals is different. They pre-bracket you and everything. So me being, you know, Juan Moreno, the little guy with, you know, the chip on his shoulder, cocky, if you will. I walk right up to that guy and I stand right next to him. Like I don't even notice him. Just stand right next to him. And my mom is in the stands like, get away, get away, move away from him. I just stand right next to him. So we end up fighting in the semifinals. I win a couple matches. He wins a couple matches. We get in the semifinal and I think I beat him. I think I do a good job and I lose. And I remember being so furious, like what? How did I, how did I lose this match? I couldn't believe it. So he wins a gold medal, 87. 88 comes around, no Korea, just training with my coach, training with everything, getting all prepared. I go to the nationals and um, I'm waiting for the showdown. And I get there and we look on the brackets, he's not there. And my dad goes, oh, Taysung Lee's not on there. And I'm like, and he's like, he's, you, you got a good chance now. Get it. And I was so mad. I'm like, you don't think I can beat him? He's like, no, no, I'm just, I'm like, you don't think I can beat him? I was mad. I go, I win nationals, but everyone's like, oh, okay, you win the gold medal nationals, you know, but Daesung wasn't there. Daesung got a wild card. He got a, a you know, free ride into the, uh, into the Olympic trials already. I didn't know this. We get to the Olympic trials. I win my first four matches. He wins his first four matches. We have to fight each other, but it didn't matter because we were both going to the finals one month later where you have the final trials. So there's no need to, to fight. If I win, it doesn't do me any better. If he wins, it doesn't do him any better. But I wanted to fight. So I went into the ring and I got my you know, I got my equipment on. I'm standing there. And they're like, you don't have to fight. I'm like, no, 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 I'm fighting. And they're like, I go, if he doesn't want to fight, that's okay. And this, you got to imagine, I'm 17 years old. And I'm telling these senior officials and this guy, like, no, if he doesn't want to fight, that's okay. But I'm here to fight. If he doesn't want to fight, that's okay. He can bow out to me. And he didn't fight. So in my mind, I'm like, <laughs> I, I'm not the one that stopped. He stopped. Nice. And a month later, you know, we had our, our Olympic trials. and. Um, it was it was magical because you know again he had been in the magazines and you know that he was going to the Olympics he was going to retire after this he was going to his homeland of Seoul Korea 
and, and fight one last time, be the Olympic team captain. Nobody, you know, mentioned much about me. And that those days it was, you know, hidden scoring, which means after the first round, they post the scores. After the second round, they post the scores. After the third round, you know, they post the scores. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it was not easy to score points. It was, you know, those matches were easy, easily fixed or easily manipulated. And, you know, to beat a guy like him was going to take a, a huge, huge upset. And I was able to do it and nice. literally shocked a lot of people and <laughs> the world. You know, when I, when I got to the Olympics, people were like, where's Dayson? <laughs> you know, I mean, it wasn't like the social media that we have nowadays. So it was an incredible day, an incredible moment. And um, I'll never forget it. And I, I, I always tell people as well, this, that was the moment that changed my life. Because um, if I lose that match, I'm not quite sure what direction my life goes. You know, I, I, I would like to think that it'd be successful in anything that I did, but maybe it was going to continue with Taekwondo. Maybe not. Uh, we never know. So yeah, it was a special, special Olympic trials. That's awesome. That's only just a few months before the Olympics, right? So it was so controversial that I won, that there was rumors that I was going to get out to the Olympic training center and train with the Olympic team and that they were going to hurt me. They were going to make sure that I that I get my arm broke or my leg broke or, or whatever so that, you know, the replacement athlete, which would have been that guy, you know, will, will take my place. And so, you know, there was talk like, should he go out to the you know, training? Should he not go out? And, you know, I went and... um you know, we, I think we had probably like poof, four weeks or five weeks of training in Colorado Springs. And, you know, I was, the truth is I wasn't sophisticated in Taekwondo like everybody else that was there was. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was a young kid that knew how to fight, that was tough and was quite honestly fearless. I mean, didn't, nobody scared me on the Olympic team. Nobody. Mm-hmm. I was just, I just was like, man, I'm from Chicago. I, I fight every weekend. <laughs> I, I, I know you guys think that I'm new on this team, but literally I would fight 40, 50 tournaments a year. So I have a lot of, I understand the ring. I understand fighting. I understand how to move. So, um, but the skill stuff, the technical stuff, uh, I mean, zero idea of what these guys were doing. And I felt, you know, really out of place. And like I said, you know, coaches didn't really talk to me too much or help me too much because I just, I looked that bad, you know, and then we went to Korea. We had another training camp in Korea in Seoul at Yongsung uh, Air Force Base, Army Base, I'm sorry. And we trained alongside the USA Olympic boxing team. And that was really exciting because I got to meet a lot of, you know, bo- I loved boxing. So I got to meet a lot of those people, Roy Jones and Kelsey Banks and just some really great fighters. And um, before you know it, I'm at the Olympic Games getting ready to compete. So the buildup was a little bit shaky for me because mm-hmm. I was so used to doing what my instructor had taught me, you know, and trained me and also, you know, for the better part of a month and a half, two months, I'm doing all these foreign drills, weird, what I, not weird because they were right. Yeah. They were, they were the correct things to do. But for me, they just didn't make any sense. They may, I mean, they were speaking a foreign language as far as I was concerned. So, you know, even though I'll tell you that I was fearless and I really, you know, didn't worry about people. I worried about my preparation a little bit, not my physical preparation because mm-hmm. I was really in good shape, but my, my skills, the, the skill set that you know allowed me to defeat Tae Sung Lee. I was definitely concerned with that that part of the preparation. How was that first Olympic experience? Then you you got there, and you know, how did kind of how did that walk us through that a little bit? You know, the Olympic Games were. I've been fortunate enough to go to a few Olympic Games now, mm-hmm. and and every Olympic Games is special. But there was none more special than than Seoul. Number one, it was the first time for Taekwondo to be there, so it was such an honor to be part of that history. Number two. 
again, I had never traveled, <laughs> you know, so all of a sudden I'm in this, you know, Korea, which I had been now two times before and, you know, kind of made a few different friends and, you know, getting a chance to go to the Olympic village. And, you know, that, if you think about that, that was during the cold war era. Yep. And so, you know, I grew up with the Rocky movies, you know, you know, <laughs> USA versus Russia, every, you know, <laughs> Americans are good. Russians are bad. So I was intrigued by Russians. I just followed Russian athletes around. <laughs> I watched them in the cafeteria. I traded pins with them because I had to see for myself, like, are these guys bad? Or are they good? I mean, it was such a, it was kind of, when I think back now, it was cute. It was cute that this little kid was like, just like, I got to see, I got to see, you That's know, funny. I got to see what, you know, are they real? Are they robots? What are they? So it was really, it's really cool. But the Olympic games themselves, the matches, you know, the draws come out and, you know, I get, I get my, my brackets. And, and again, I, I, I told you, nobody really thought that I was going to had a chance to, to get on the podium. And, you know, I win my first match, which I wasn't supposed to. And all of a sudden, you know, uh, coach pats me on the back, talks to me a little bit. Win my second match. Hey, okay. All of a sudden, you find myself in the semifinals. And now I got, you know, a number of people around me. And I remember, again, I, I, I told you earlier, I, I had this chip on my shoulder. I mean, I think I was very respectful, but I always had a chip on my shoulder. And I'm like, in my brain, I'm like, oh, now you guys want to talk to me. You guys didn't want to talk to me in any of the training camps in Colorado Springs. You didn't talk to me here in Korea. And now I'm in the semis. Now you want to be my friend. Now you want to give me advice. And so I was just like, when the semifinals and I find myself like a dream, like a movie, I'm in the finals of the Olympic games in Korea against the Korean athlete. And it gets better. The high school that I went to, the Dongsung high school, the coach from that high school is the Olympic coach. And the athlete is from his high school. So now I get to compete against that. It was just like, like you couldn't make this stuff up. I mean, it was just, it was crazy. And we had a, you know, very, a very good match. I mean, uh, you know, some people will tell you it was controversial. Some people will tell you that, you know, I should have won a gold medal. I, I, I thought, you know, if you look at the, the way the scoring broke down in that match, I thought that I won the match and uh, ended up being, um, I want to say it was three to two. The first round, he won one to zero. The second round, I won one to zero. And then the third round, um, right towards the end of the match, I hit him with a really good like step in back kick. And when I hit him with a back kick, I launched him over <laughs> the referee chair out of bounds. And then you can see on the video, like I put my hands up and I put my hands on my head, like, oh my God, I, I just won. And my coach is jumping up in the air. And you know, the match ends a couple of you know seconds after that. And I'm like, I, I won. I, I did it. And the crowd, you know, all of a sudden they, they raise his hand. And, you know, of course, the, the home crowd is, is cheering. And, you know, I'm upset. I just beeline and take, take off to the, uh, the locker room. And Arlene Lemus runs down and comes into the locker room. She's like, Juan, Juan, you got to go back there. You got to go back there. They're protesting the match. And I'm like, what? I'm like, you're, they're protesting. So as I'm trying to walk out, these Olympic officials are pulling me, saying, no, no, you got to get ready for the award ceremony. Our USA team is put, I'm literally being like a tug of war back and forth, back and forth, because they don't want any spectacle. Anyway, I go out to the arena, and the Olympic coach is yelling at the head table. He's protesting the match. And then I walk out there, and he takes me into the center of the ring, tells me to sit down. This is how you protested back in those days. And you sat down, kind of legs crossed. I sat in the middle of the match, and I just kind of was doing like I was told. I'm just kind of like, all right, all right, we'll see what happens. And he comes back, tells me to stand up, and kind of explains the situation, and says it doesn't look like they're going to change it and kind of takes me out of there. And um, so it was crazy because, you know, number one, I got to the final. Number two was a controversial match. Three, they protested. 
for NBC goes crazy on this stuff. That was the Olympics that Roy Jones Jr. was in the Olympic final against the Korean athlete, and it should have been a 5-0 decision, and he lost. And it was found out years later, I think 20 years later, that the officials were bribed. And so it was the only time in history of the Olympic boxing that someone that didn't win the gold medal won the most outstanding boxer award. Mm -hmm. And so there was a few different things like that in boxing. And so when Taekwondo comes around and that happens, it was kind of big news. And Mm -hmm. um, it's, uh, you know, one of the stories I tell people is, is that people thought that I wanted to protest. I didn't even know what was going on. I really didn't. And, you know, the NBC say Juan Moreno was so, young Juan Moreno was so distraught that the Olympic coach had to convince him to come off the mat. I'm like, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but it, you know it goes with the territory the story yeah. was like you know is what it is but it was all in all it was amazing as disappointed as i was in the moment mm-hmm. and you know I, i've listened to my interviews afterwards it was again another moment that just defined my my life and to this day you know 30 whatever how many years later people still tell me you got robbed people still you know put the video clips of it and you know i, I may have got more respect and notoriety from that loss than if I had if I had won the gold medal. That's a good point. So it was, yeah, it really it's it's an interesting you know debate and yeah it was it was what it was but it was my first Olympic experience was fabulous like you know I got to spend it with my my mom my dad my brother my sister you know me and my brother I got some money you know in my pocket we're you know we're running around Seoul Korea for two weeks afterwards we're we're buying clothes buying shoes you know just living the life you know just having a great time and it's uh, i i'm sitting here telling you this you know story and my i'm just smiling because i can just visualize the city i can visualize you know the times that we spent and it was truly amazing for me truly amazing that's really really cool and like you said that you've competed three times that you that first one's definitely the most memorable for sure though oh yeah yeah you know i mean not to fast forward but you know it's interesting because in 88 and 92 i have the same result silver medal but it's funny because in 88, I was the kid that wasn't supposed to do anything, mm-hmm. right? And, and I get a silver, and even though I'm not happy with it. By 92, I'm the guy that wins World Cups. I'm the guy that wins Pan Am Games. I go to the Olympics, and there's no Korean in my division. Korea selected another division, I would like to think, because of me. They didn't want to risk <laughs> a possible loss. And, you know, I'm going there to win a gold medal. That's it. That's it. And, you know, I don't. I get, a, I get the exact same result. And... You know, it's it's funny how one moment, you know, you're kind of proud. And the one minute, other moment, I was literally apologizing to people why I didn't finish the job and get a gold medal. And, you know, there's always reasons and excuses for, for everything. But like I said, on the surface, same result, mm-hmm. but totally, totally different, like, situations. The one I was the, the beginner by, like I said, by 92, I was one of the more senior, other than Herb Perez, I was one of the most senior guys on the team. Definitely at that, up until that moment, her Perez included, one of the most decorated, yeah. you know, going into the Olympic Games. So it was, uh, you know, Barcelona was a, another different monster, different beast, if you will. Okay. Did you try to go for it in 96 or did you take a break? So what happened was, and that's, so what a lot of people don't realize is 92, they, the Olympic, Taekwondo was not on the Olympic format in 96. And oh, so right. that, yes. that's one of the reasons I, why right. I retired. I mean, I was, I was 21 years old, mm-hmm. you know, and I have athletes right now. And if my 21 year athlete told me they're going to retire, I'd probably smack them. Like, what are you talking about? You're going to retire. But if you look at it, my, it was, Olymp- it was shifting right from, from exhibition status to full medal status. Right. That's why from they had to take the year off or demonstration. Yeah. Ex- yes. And so okay. really 96 was the first time ever that 
from that moment on, there has never been a, a, a demonstration sport. You're either a sport or you're not. Right. So even though, for example, karate was in the last one, they're not on the next one, but they weren't a demonstration. They're still full medal sports. So mm-hmm. we are a demonstration sport in 88 and 92. We get the same medals. Our medals don't count for the medal results, you know, yeah. for the tally. So 96, you know, the, we weren't on the, on the format. There was nothing in the works that we were going to be a full-fledged sport in 2000. I was 21. I'd been to two games. I'd been to World Cups. I'd been to Pan Ams. I'm like, you know, I, I had been losing a lot of weight. I got, I've grown really, really tired of the politics and some of the, the shenanigans that went on within the organization. And I'm like, I'm out. I couldn't wait to get out. I mean, out so much that I didn't even want to teach sport taekwondo, sport right. martial art. I mean, I just 100% traditional when I, when I retired. And, um... Yeah, so you know that's that was the reason why I didn't continue through '96 as well. I mean, there just wasn't uh, there wasn't something dangling there in front of me to to really reach. Okay, and then 2000, you you decided why not go for it one more time? Yeah, that's why I never say never because uh, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I, when I do sports seminars, I always tell people I never speak in absolutes, or we shouldn't mm-hmm. speak in absolutes because there's just too many things. And um, so I think probably around '96, '95, '96, they were maybe '94. They were talking about. Taekwondo had a really good shot of being in the Olympic uh, Games full-fledged in Sydney, Australia. And in 95, you know, I was still, you know, I was only 22, 23, 24, whatever I was. And I was, you know, good shape. I still had a lot of pride. And, you know, every time I fought with kids all the time, I fought with national team members all the time. It wasn't, you know, I was still pretty much in my prime. And so we were at an event for U.S. Taekwondo Union. And um, it was actually the Olympic Sports Festival back in those days. They had like a mini Olympics in the United States and they divide the country north, south, east, and west. And they did it for basketball, volleyball, soccer, taekwondo, everything. And so taekwondo, we did the same thing. And I was there as an administrator. And um, during one of the practices, you know, I was just, we, everyone sparring and I started sparring. And, um, you know, I was just doing pretty well against all the top guys. And I'm like, not just guys in my weight, guys, two, three, four weight divisions above me. I'm like, okay, next day I do it again. Uh, no, it's okay. No, no, sir. No. By the third day. I couldn't even get a match. Nobody wanted to fight with me. I was just like, <laughs> man, uh, in my brain, I'm like, what's going on? So I think 95 kind of gave me an inkling that I still have it. If I want to do it, you know, I, I, I can make the transition back into the sport. And uh, as soon as they announced in the Olympics, you know, I, I privately, uh, you know, told myself and the people around me that, that I was going to get myself back in shape and give myself a three-year plan and, and, and see if I can make the Olympic team in the United States and go to the, the first ever official olympic games and um yeah that's what i did i i kind of um rehashed my uh my plans like i used to do when i was young and going to korea um, 97 i used all of 97 to to train no competitions because i knew that my body you know it's one thing to be fresh for two months or three months or a couple weeks but to to sustain the training necessary on a daily basis weekly basis monthly basis over a year time or even longer i had to make sure my body was ready for that that again and so that's what i did everybody was like compete compete i'm like nope and sure enough you know by you know june and july my body started kind of not breaking down but i started mm-hmm. feeling a little bit more I, I didn't feel as explosive so it was a, a smart training plan for me and um 98 go back to the you know i gotta start from the bottom from the state championships to the national championships to the team trials and you know boom right back on the national team you know first time out didn't really have a hiccup or, or too difficult of a time and mm-hmm. I think I had a couple of knockouts, you know, which is not real common in, you know, the lighter weight categories. Right. And I think I had two, two that day and they were, they were big ones too. So yeah, I was back. <laughs> I was back and uh, make the national team in 98. 
but I didn't go to the, the national team event, the Pan Ams, because my brother got married that year, 98. And so 99 comes around and uh, I, I make the team again, but I break my, my hand and, in the trials. And I was like, I'm like, no, I'm going to Worlds. I'm going to Worlds. I'm going to Worlds. And they're like, no, you're not. No, you're not. No, you're not. <laughs> and so I cut off my cast. I you know wrapped it up. I went to the Worlds and um, I won a match or two and I ended up losing to an athlete. And I was so mad at myself for fighting when I knew I shouldn't be fighting, <laughs> you know, but I, I let my ego come in there. But yep. really for me, it was all part of the master plan of getting back to the Olympics in, in 2000 nice. and um, 2000 comes around and like everything's going like clockwork. I'm boom, boom, boom. And I'm in the first open Olympic trials. And uh, there was actually two open Olympic trials, which means that in this event, you had to get first or second to qualify for the final Olympic trials. So okay. there's going to be a total of four athletes, two from each event. And, um, I'm fighting flawlessly throughout my first couple of matches. I don't give up a point and I get to the semifinal. I got to win that to get to the you know first or second. And I fight, you probably heard the name, uh, Mark Lopez, mm-hmm. um, Steve, Steven Lopez's younger brother. And yep. Mark was a young kid, um, had got a medal at that world championships um, that I had told you that I had lost in. And uh, he was young, he was big, he was strong, he was arrogant, cocky, mm-hmm. like in a good way. Yeah. You know, he, he was kind of like a young Juan Moreno and he wanted to fight and I lost one to zero, <laughs> one to zero, but I didn't do anything. Like I, I just, I wasn't myself when I fought him and um, no one said much to me. And then the next day the headlines come out, Mark Lopez in the Colorado Springs Gazette. It's my time. He's old. He, you know, <sighs> you know, just a lot of stuff. And I, you know, I'm a sports guy. I, I get it. You know, mm-hmm. people trash talk a little bit, but the Taekwondo community like really embraced me and they were, they were so mad. I was just kind of like, all right, it is what it is. I, you know, got to, but, but now my back is against the wall. And I had been trained by myself in Miami. Um, I had relocated from Chicagoland area to Miami. And you know, everything was going along perfect until it's not perfect, until all of a sudden I take that loss in the United States, which is like I don't lose in the United States. Yeah. <laughs> and so all of a sudden I'm down to one tournament. If I don't get first or second this next tournament, I don't even get to go to the Olympic trial finals. So I made a decision to move out to Colorado Springs. One of my Olympic teammates was the coach of that, of that team. And, uh, you know, I called him up. I said, listen, I need some, I need some help. I need some bodies. I need, some, I need somebody to, to take over the reins. I can't run the trains by myself. I need someone to tell me when to go, when to stop, when to do more. And he said, of course. And um, we went out there and I prepared and I won the next Olympic fight off and got first, uh, first place. And I get ready for the Olympic trials. And, um, prepared extremely extremely detailed for that you know now i wasn't the the fastest guy in the room i wasn't the strongest guy in the room but i was definitely the smartest guy in the room with the most experience and so i really game planned hard for my rivals at that time and um i beat mark lopez very 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 easy <laughs> and uh ended up fighting one of his teammates in the in the finals and, and beat him again and and made my my third olympic team you know getting ready to go to to australia That's pretty awesome yeah, it was, it was it was a good story in the sense that mm-hmm. you know I'd been away from the sport for so long, and you know now I wasn't like I said I wasn't the young buck anymore. I was the old dude, you know. I mean, <laughs> on the team, I was the guy that I was crusty. I mean, they had all these modern training techniques and all these different things. I'm like this old school fighter, <laughs> you know. So mm-hmm. it was pretty it was pretty fun for for me to to make that and and to to experience that nice. that moment that Olympic trial final. 
So was there any thought at all in 2004 or you, did you know for sure after 2000, you were done competing for that? No, by, no, by then, you know, you know, I, I was winding down, you know, okay. there was a, my lead up into 2000, I'll tell you, I mean, there, you know, there was a lot of doubt from me in 99 and early 2000. Like, did I need to do this again? Like, again, I mean, you see it a lot in athletes, you know, their egos get the best of them. They still think they got one more great event left in them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I did so well, but I started thinking about it. I'm like, does it really matter? Does it really matter if I go back to one Olympic Games? I mean, who does it matter to? Am I doing this for everybody else, for myself? You know, because you know, the story was Juan wants to go and get that Olympic gold medal. He's got two silvers. He wants that gold. And it makes sense. Of course I did. And, you know, but there was some times in 99 and early 2000 that I'm like, did I put my life on hold again for this? Because I did. I put my life on hold, you know, for three, four years to to prepare, you know, my family and everything. So there was a little bit of doubt. But after the games, I knew 100% that it was time for me to coach and, and, and start to give back to, you know, the community more than what I had been up until that point. And, and, I, and I'll tell you, the Olympic Games were perfect. They were perfect. I mean, I didn't have to lose weight. My weight was just right there, 58 kilos, easy, 128 pounds, no problem healthy. I didn't have a bruise or I was fine. Family there, training environment was good. I had good training partners. The draw came out by the, and that time it was still a random draw. Like they put the numbers in the computer, boom, they come out and all the top guys, you know, at the time were on the top. They were on the top of the bracket and I was on the bottom. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, man, this is working out for me. You know, three months before I went to the World Cup, my whole life I've been trying to win a World Cup, beat Korea, beat Korea, beat Korea. And I've always, second, silver, silver. I go to this World Cup in France just to get some matches in before the Olympic trials. Win my first, win my second, win my third. I'm in the semifinal against Korea. I beat Korea. Everyone's going crazy. Uh, you know, all the USA guys. And then I'm like, wait a minute. I'm in the final now against Egypt. I got, I got to beat the Egypt. I beat the Egyptian. I'm sitting around going, oh my gosh, I came to this tournament just to get some matches in for preparation. And now I win the gold medal. So when the draws come out and I see this in my brain, I'm like, I'm literally one of the top guys in the world. I just won the World Cup two, three months ago. Now at the Olympic Games, I have this good draw and I drop my first match. I lose my first match. It's crazy because everything was right. Everything was good. And I fought bad. I had a bad day. Dang. I was flat. I Maybe I looked too far ahead. I don't know what it was. But i tell you what I did do when I was done. I was happy. Mm -hmm. I was content. I knew that my competition days were over. I was happy that I looked around and, and I saw my family there. And I said, you know what? My family wouldn't be here if it wasn't for me. Steven Lopez was a kid and he won a gold medal. And that day I was able to, you know, towel him off, hold targets for him get him food, just whatever I could do, you know, almost like a big brother. Mm -hmm. And nobody knows, but it, that whole experience was just, it was perfect. It was great. No bitterness, no anger, no sadness, nothing. Just like it was meant to be. I did what I was supposed to do. And remember what I told you at the beginning of this conversation? Mm -hmm. I prepared, I, I listened, I gave my all, but I fell short. And it happens every day in life. It happens every day in sport. And I'm not an exception to that rule. And it did. I, I, I fell I fell flat that day and it is what it is. So what made you want to get into coaching? Was that, did they approach you or was that something you think, Hey, I want to give this a shot. You know, after 92, I, I always loved teaching, you know, going mm -hmm. back to my first instructor, I was a Brown belt and my instructor would be like, you know, want go to my house and get my keys. I'm going to be five minutes late. I need you to open up the school. And I would, 
he would come and teach. Then it would got to Juan, I need you to do the the exercises. I'll be there in twenty minutes. And they would before you know it, I'm I'm a brown belt, the eleven year old kid doing the whole class. Mm-hmm. I'm a brown belt signing people up three months for ninety nine dollars. My instructor like, where'd that money come from? I'm like, oh, I signed up three people. He's like, what? <laughs> I mean, I always loved teaching, and nice. so even after ninety two, I I did a lot of sports seminars, and I think um, you know my one of my great friends, Her Perez, you know gave me some good advice and I became a pretty good presenter, you know, with my material and, and, and my, my ideas and my philosophy and my, you know, my ways of training. And so, you know, what I told you, when I moved to Miami in 97, I got a following of people around here that enjoyed me training them and, and, and teaching them and leading them. And so when I was done after 2000, I, you know, I had a built in team around me that was ready for me to like, not be their peer, but be their coach. And so I knew right away that, you know, I was going to start coaching. So um, 92 to 97, I was already, you know, I had a martial arts school. Mm-hmm. I'd been doing seminars. I had, you know, did some things for, you know, the organization. You know, like I said, I kind of delayed some of that, you know, from 97 to 2000 for a personal goal. So yeah, 2000 was done. Boom, straight into development of my team. So how, how different is it coaching at the Olympics versus competing? Oh, that's a great question. You know, people don't like to hear this. And mm-hmm. um, I, I say that there's there's levels to this stuff. There's a famous boxing coach, you know, there's a famous boxer, Floyd Mayweather, yep. his, uh, his uncle Roger Mayweather, he said this, this quote went recently, actually, and it resonated with me. There's a lot of people in boxing that don't know shit about boxing. <laughs> and, and there's a lot of people in Taekwondo that don't know shit about Taekwondo when it comes to coaching. Because regardless of what people think, Taekwondo is, is first and foremost in this country, a martial art mm-hmm. and secondary, a sport. So most people that are teaching the martial, you know, they have these school, these school owners, they're martial artists. And there's a few of them that were athletes that transitioned into martial art school owners. And then there's some that just were martial art school owners and then started coaching. And so you know, when you look at baseball, basketball, football, boxing, they've got hundreds of years of, of sport development, you know, yep. from high school to college to pro to whatever. But in martial art, we don't really have that. So I think that being a, an Olympic athlete helped me understand what people go through. I think that understanding and, and enjoying a lot of other sports and how they compete and what makes them tick helped me become a better coach. And quite honestly, I think just, you know, some people have an ability to express their their concepts better than others. And and you look at, for example, there's a lot of professional basketball players. Let's use that that sport. The Magic Johnsons of the world, the Michael Jordans of the world. They're great, like great, great, great. Maybe the greatest of all time but they're not good coaches at all, mm-hmm. right? They just, they, they can't, for somehow, they're such, they're such geniuses, they can't relate to maybe the everyday athlete. And so I feel like, you know, I was lucky enough to be a, a pretty good athlete, but also have the ability to, to teach what made me successful. And I say that there's levels to it because, you know, I didn't just pop up right to the Olympic Games. You know, I built my personal club on a local level and then on a domestic level and then on an international level. I coached on a junior national level, on a development level. I went to my first Olympic Games as a coach, but didn't sit in the chair. I was, you know, Gene Lopez, you know, had his three brothers and sisters and another personal athlete that he coached. And, you know, I ran the training partners. I did the scouting. I warmed them up. So I did a lot of things before I was actually sitting in the Olympics in a medal match, you know, and I think Mm -hmm. all that, you know, prepared me step by step, whether I knew it or not, for when my my athletes were in 2012 and they're at the Olympic Games, you know, were in the medal rounds. When I tell you I was I was cool, calm, and collected, 
I didn't feel like an ounce of nerves. I, I really didn't. I was just like, this is just another walk in the park. It's just another event for me. Nice. Maybe it wasn't like that for the athletes, but that's how I, I approached it. You know, and even my, my psychological approach to developing my athletes and, and preparing them on a mental side. I mean, I was probably a little bit ahead of a lot of people when it came to that. I didn't just focus on the technical part of Taekwondo. I focused on the physical development of their bodies, the physical development of their techniques, the application of their techniques into skill and strategy. And then, of course, the psychology of, of preparing themselves for what they are about to do. And I know it sounds easy, but that's not a, I mean, I, I battle with that every day, every single day with my athletes. And, you know, to get those special, unique Olympians is even more difficult because they're fighting and competing against a, a bunch of other alphas. You know what I'm saying? They're all at that extremely high intelligent ability, physicality level. So it's not an easy thing to do. No, definitely not. It sounds like you've done well with it, so that's good. Talk a little bit about peak performance. What can people expect if uh, maybe one of the listeners is, is in, in Miami area and they want to stop in and check out your school? What, what can they expect yeah. to find there? So peak performance was you know developed... Um, early 2000. Um, well, I mean, it started in 97 with our group here in Miami, but when I retired in 2000, you know, my business name was Peak Performance Martial Arts. And uh, it's funny, it wasn't my, my first name. <laughs> my first name was High Performance, High Performance Martial Arts. And uh, High Performance has to, happens to be like a, a very popular like car name, like High Performance Cars and that people trick out their cars. And so I couldn't get that name, you know, mm -hmm. to, to the business. So anyway, we came up with peak performance and, um, you know, my focus was in the beginning was to only work with athletes that want to aspire to be Olympic level athletes, you know, again, national level, international level. I didn't really want to teach martial arts from the, you know, from the ground up, from white belt up. And so, um, I thought that I would have five, 10 people that would like to do Taekwondo my way, the, the way that I thought you needed to do it to win. And to my surprise, before you know it, I had, you know, a stable of 30, 40, 50 athletes wow. um, and aging from 15 to 25. Okay. Um, didn't really have any, too many young ones, but I didn't have old ones. And so, you know, these guys, you know, I, I rented a warehouse, no air conditioning, no signs. I mean, you couldn't find it unless you had a treasure map. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't, it was there on purpose. I, I didn't want people just strolling in like, hey, what are you doing? I want Johnny to sign up. It just wasn't that place. It was a rocky type gym. It was hot. It was sweaty. It was dirty. You did things my way or, or, or no way. And so we, we developed a culture in peak performance of, of how we trained, how we act, how we performed how we trusted and respected each other. And all of a sudden we just took it on the road and, you know, peak performance had a three prong model. Number one was we were a development program. We are going to develop our athletes the way that we thought was, was the right way. Number two, we had a, a business model. I had a business model of I'm going to take my model and replicate it in other areas to add to that development. And the third thing was, I always call it do the right thing, do the right thing model. Just, give back to the community. When I do seminars, people say, can I videotape them? Absolutely. People say, do I have to pay to, to spectate? No, sit down. And I did that then and I do that now. And it's my way of just kind of the best thing that I could do for people. So we started small, we started humble. And before you know, all of a sudden we have people on national teams. And before you know it, you know, I'm being asked to coach on the national team. And before you know it, we have Olympic level athletes. And it didn't take long for us to... I mean, for lack of a better word, pretty much dominate the domestic, the domestic field. It was at the time, you know, early, early 2000s, 
it was myself and, and coach Gene Lopez. We, we kind of were the Chicago bears, green Bay Packers. We just, we hated each other. We just, we just, you know, bitter rivals to the end, you know, but what would happen was we would all make national teams. And then when we would go to the world championships. We had to become friends and we had to uh, learn how to work with each other. So peak performance kind of started like that. And, and we just grew, you know, we have 14 programs around the country. We have three programs internationally. And, you know, we, we pride ourselves on our network of people to, to help everyone meet their, their competition needs. Here, specifically in Miami, I have two programs. I have my, my sport program, which is six days a week. And then I have a, a martial art program with started about five years ago with my youngest daughter. I have four girls and my uh, youngest daughter is, uh, she's 10 now. She has her black belt. But um, when she was five years old, my wife was like, hey, we need to we need to involve her in the martial arts. We believe in the martial arts and the morals, ethics, values of it. And we started with a little program with her and a couple of her classmates from school, from kindergarten. And now we have a full-fledged beginner class and a full-fledged family class. And we kind of do it all. But me specifically, my focus is still on, on world-class sport, sport development. So. That's awesome. Congrats. That sounds like you're doing well with that. In all your years of martial arts, is there one philosophy you've learned that just stands out? It rises to the top. You keep coming back to it. Um, well, I have a couple. I mean, number one is like I said, I, I try not to speak in absolutes because I think the what I've learned from at least Taekwondo and you know, I love jujitsu and everything else. You know, while some things are a constant and some things are better than others, it still changes. It still develops and it still you know, gets better. And so if you speak in absolutes, I think that, I think that's an old school way of thinking. You know, mm -hmm. these coaches or instructors like, we do this like this because this is the way you do it. This is the right way. Well, and then all of a sudden somebody does something a little different. And you're like, yeah, but what about that? No, don't look at that. This is the right way. There is no right way anymore. And I think um, that's the, been the great development of martial arts. There's been so many good instructors that have spawned good students that have become good instructors down the, down the line. And so you're just seeing, you know, many more people developed. And so I just, I try not to speak in absolutes, especially when it comes to the sport. The other thing for me is, you know, I'm the ultimate competitor. If we play checkers, we play chess, we gamble, we play soccer. I mean, I play to the end. <laughs> I play till I can't walk. I mean, I, maybe over competitive. Um, mm -hmm. But that being said, I believe in character. You know, I'm one of my favorite coaches of all time and books to read are, you know, the legendary coach, John Wooden from UCLA. Yes, He talks about, pay more attention to your character than your reputation because your reputation is who people think you are and your character is who you really are. And, you know, I'm dealing with a lot of hotshot athletes, a lot of motivated, overzealous parents. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm like, listen, at the end of the day, a lot of people, you know, won't remember what you did, but they'll remember how you treated them. Yes. They'll remember how you did it. And like I said, I, I love sport and I love the performances and I love the result, but the result is nothing but a moment. The process and what you do after within your life, I think, is is your character. And you have to, you need to think about that and reflect on that because in this day and age, everybody wants things fast. Everybody wants things now. Everybody wants to be recognized, you know, with the social media type stuff. So I really work hard to promote character, you know, to promote growth versus goals, you know, things that... Um, they're a little, they're, I think these are old school things, things that just maybe were natural back in the day. They're not natural now. These, mm -hmm. these kids and the, the generations, <laughs> uh, some adults, they don't think like that. They want everything now, you know? Yeah. And so for me, don't speak in absolutes, pay attention to your character. And my third one is we all need a certain amount of, of motivation. And for me, there's the quick motivation. It's kind of like that shot in that arm where you, you see something that inspires you to do something important. You know, it's, it's, 
it's that uh it's that grocery line thing you know where you're walking in you know about to pay and you see some a kid sees candy and they the impulse they want to buy it and they feel good for the moment right mm-hmm. and i think we all need that sometimes to be inspired by a coach or a, a game or a movie but the problem is that's that's only short lived right it's not going to last forever so i think the second form of motivation is is your you know for a cause something bigger than you you know whether it's you believe in curing cancer so you're going to raise money you believe in helping the homeless so you're going to donate your time you're doing something bigger than yourself and you you have that motivation that makes you get up in the morning to to solve a, a, a problem that that exists in in life and then i think the biggest one is something deep inside of you your morals your ethics your values something that you truly believe in because at the end of the day you know those first two motivational factors can come and go but what's inside you is always inside you it never stops that flame never stops until until you leave this earth so you know when i'm working with athletes and and addressing groups of people all three forms of the motivation are important but probably none so more than the than the third one you know and that's you know what i like about the martial arts is we know most you know the best martial artists take ownership of what happens you know because we're as much as we train with a group or train with a team or travel with a group or travel with a team when you go on the mat it's just you you know i think you you met, you talked to me about your black belt test mm-hmm. and it was just you you know nobody can help you yep. and so you know when you take ownership it's a big thing and i think that's why i love the martial arts so much because i love sports i love team sports i love ind- individual sports but something about the martial art the combative individual combative sports really tell a lot about about the person. I like it. So what are your thoughts on on MMA and the UFC? Is that something you're a fan of? I am. I wish uh, you know <laughs> maybe I don't wish. I was going to say <laughs> I wish it was around earlier when I was young, but I don't know. I'm a fan. I'm okay. a fan of like I said, I'm a fan of martial arts. I'm a fan of of how these people have taken things to such a professional level. I remember the first one in 92 93 they actually mm-hmm. asked my friend her perez to fight in and he actually that, was yeah. one of the, the commentators and you know if you look back in those it was just a brawl mm-hmm. i didn't have a whole lot of respect at that time but you look at these guys now with weight divisions and and how professional they are and the diversity they need to have to be successful it's pretty impressive as a martial art purist maybe some of the respect and admiration that they yeah. they don't display for each other is not necessarily my cup of tea but um Listen, it's you know it's a sign of the times, right? I mean, you look at, I mean, moms, dads, you know, they all know MMA. They know the word. They know kickboxing classes to go and kick and punch on the bag. And you know, parents will even say, "I want my kid to learn MMA." I'm like, really? That's what that's what you want your kid to do? <laughs> I mean, it, you know, it, it's uh, I, I have a lot of respect for what they built, and you know, you, like I said, I am a fan. There's there's some people that I respect, you know, more than others. I mean, a perfect example kind of goes. I mean, after speaking with you, listening to me speak right now. Mm-hmm. Like I love Khabib. I love his guys. I think they're they're disciplined men, serious athletes, warriors, you know. And I like them. I mean, maybe they're boring for for some people. Maybe they don't talk enough smack or give enough bulletin board material. But for me, I like their their martial art. I like their tradition. I like their their values. You know. Again, I'm saying that just watching them on TV. For all I know, they could be monsters. <laughs> but from what I see, you know, on the public, you know, version. I like that versus maybe some of the other guys that trying to throw things at each other or giving it, dropping F bombs and yeah. trying to fight or whatever. I mean, that's just, that's just not my cup of tea, but the sport itself, I'm a fan. Okay, good. So are you hopeful for the future of like, how do you think the future of Olympic Taekwondo looks? Are you hopeful? Yeah. Are you excited for the way it's heading? Are you, you maybe think there's some changes that need to be made? Yeah, I think there's some changes that need to be made. So uh, I'll start with the good. 
when I grew up in 88 and 92, the sport was dominated by a handful of countries. They were good, but it was dominated by a handful of countries. Countries in, in Europe weren't that great. Countries in Russia, or I'm sorry, the, the Russian Republic wasn't even broken up then. So Russia wasn't anything. China wasn't anything. Heck, even in the African countries next to, I mean, maybe Egypt. That was about it. But now, as a world sport, I mean, the African countries, top to bottom, good. The Asian countries, top to bottom, good. You know, the Russian republics that broke up, you know, the, you know, Azerbaijan and Uzbekistan, Ukraine, all of them, they're just amazing. Um, so the reason that was able to happen was the invention of electronic scoring because everything became fair. Yeah. Everything became even. Now, I'm not the biggest fan of the electronic scoring because I think it's flawed. I don't think the technology is good, but it's evenly flawed for both of us, me and you. Yeah. You understand what I'm saying? There's no, the subjectivity is, for the most part, has been taken away. And oh yeah, guess what? All of a sudden, these small, poor, underdeveloped countries are winning. How is that? The same thing happened in, in fencing. For years, fencing was judged by the eye. And same thing, certain countries, East Germany, Russia, they won all the time. Domination. And as soon as they got to electronics, all of a sudden countries like the United States, countries like other countries, all of a sudden started winning. So it begs the question, were we that bad before or we just, it was so subjective that we weren't winning. And, you know, the United States was on the good end of that stick in the early 80s, 90s. You know, we were one of the top countries. We got the benefit of the doubt, possibly, possibly. And all of a sudden, when everything is equal, the level of the playing field became much more level. So I think from a world sport, we're in a really good situation. I think from Olympic sport, we're in a really good situation. The problem is, as many people have documented, the physicality of fighting, the physicality of Taekwondo, it has been pretty much lost. I have no, no qualms about the ability of the athletes. The mm -hmm. athlete, these athletes are phenomenal nowadays. The flexibility, the manipulation of kicks, the strength, the core, I mean, they're, they're supermen, yep. superwomen, but the style of fighting, the rules of the fighting, the technology of the PSS, the, the electronic systems, they're just not up to par. They're just not, they're just not good enough. They're rewarding the wrong stuff. And so therefore the game, you can't blame the coaches and the athletes because they're just doing what they need to do to win. Right. But the systems themselves are bad. So I think, I think there needs to be an overhaul of the, the, the system, the, the, the electronics. I also think that the, the uh, the rules themselves could be tweaked a little bit mm -hmm. to make it uh, more spectator friendly. And the most controversial one, I left it to last, is the referees have to be fake. Yeah. We are in this situation because the referees couldn't do their job, because they were unfair, because they were some of them, not all of them, some of them were corrupt at the wrong times when the world could see. And that's why we were forced to go to electronic scoring. Mm -hmm. Boxing is not electronic scoring. Wrestling's not electronic scoring, and they all have their problems too. Yeah, you know, judo—it's all with the naked eye. It's all by the professionals. It's all by the sports-specific, you know, personnel. Taekwondo can do it if they wanted to. If they professionalized their their referees, you know, if they held them to a standard that they held us, you know, if a coach—me, I'm a coach—if I if I act out because I'm so upset at a call, I get a yellow card. I could be removed from the tournament and removed from future events. A referee could make a horrible, horrible call. And nothing happens. They're back to the next match. You know, I mean, it's even like in the NFL, the NBA. Yeah, those referees are, are human. They're going to make mistakes. But if they make enough of them, they lose their jobs. Yeah. <laughs> they're, not, they're, not, they're not at the Super Bowl anymore. So I'm happy with 
the state of the game as far as the people mm-hmm. that are, are participating. I'm just not happy with the PSS, and I'm definitely not happy with the look of the game. The game, Taekwondo has so much more to give from an appearance standpoint, from a speed standpoint, from an explosion standpoint, from an impact standpoint. Like I said, nothing against the athletes because mm-hmm. I coach them every day, and I see these guys, and they are just, whew, they are unbelievable what they can do. But something's missing. That's a great answer. I just want to see more punches. <laughs> I really do. Yeah. I, I wish they'd punch more. That's what my one, because like, yeah, the school I go to and the tournaments we go to, it's a little, it's, it's pretty much 50, 50, it's 50% feet, 50% hands. We, we throw a lot of punches in our tournaments. Well, you know, it's, it's funny you say that because actually, so when I fought early, you know, late, you know, eighties, early nineties, even mm-hmm. in 2000 punches would never score. Like you never scored a punch. Yeah. You could punch to hurt or to, to set up something, but it was all kicks. Now punches are one of the, one of the most important things of, of the matches, oh, that's the good. punches and the deductions, because now deductions are very clearly defined. For example, these two rules that I think revolutionize us. Number one, you got a bounce. It's a deduction. So there's no, he kicked me out. I got pushed. No, you go out, you get deducted. You fall down, you get deducted. And when I say deducted, it means the other person gets the point. Mm -hmm. So people used to always go out of bounds. People used to always fall. Mm -hmm. Now people don't go out of bounds. People don't fall. It's amazing how resilient the athletes and coaches are, how they they figure out ways to not get penalized. So, But I'll go back to the the referees. If you see some of these punches, they're horrible. Mm -hmm. Some of the punches, I mean, we practice these punches that can fool the judges. And I'm like, you guys should be martial art black belts you should know what a good punch is you should know but they don't there's horrible ones and they're of course subjective because they're you know there's no electronic gloves yet hopefully they're not but you know so they're these punches are coming at the wrong time the last couple seconds of a match someone throws a a front hand jab and it gets scored you're like what come on so listen nothing is perfect our sport is not perfect i think we need former athletes and current coaches on the committees it makes sense, right? Why mm-hmm. you want current coaches that know what's going on? They understand the the feel of the fights, and they understand what the athletes are going through. And you want successful former athletes. You know, you can't have current athletes because they're no matter how much they're trying to be good, they're thinking only tunnel vision, right? right. They're they're selfish. So you need some that are retired, that are successful, that again been there, done that, and can can lend their two cents. Versus we have these committees, coaching committees, technical committees. I don't even know who the people are. I I, I mean. Haven't seen them. Yeah. They certainly never competed. They certainly don't come to the events, and that's a shame. Yeah, great. I, I love your input on that. So, all right, I got a few fun questions to wrap it up oh, before yeah. I let you go. Now, this doesn't have to be four. I've had as few as two and as many as eight. I just want uh, a few names that you would put on your personal Mount Rushmore of martial arts. Oh my gosh, let me think this through. Hold on. <laughs> oh my, I should know this right away. Personal Mount Rushmore. Okay, I'm trying to think this through. So you mean like Taekwondo, karate, or could it be judo? Or could it be anybody? I've had people put boxers on there and collegiate wrestlers and, you know, take a lot of people put just people from their own style. I, you know, obviously two of the most well-picked ones are probably Bruce Lee and Chuck Norris. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, yeah. you know, it's up to you. Yeah, it's too easy. You know, so one of my personal favorites is Johnny Smith. He's a two-time Olympic gold medals wrestler. Nice. Uh, he's really, he's up there because of, I, there's a more famous one, you know, Kale Sanderson, mm-hmm. but I like Johnny because um, I went to the two Olympic Games with him. I got to see him. I got to see him much after. He's just a class act guy, a professional guy. So I like uh, him nice. from wrestling. My gosh. Dude, this is, oh my God, you're tough on me. I'm trying <laughs> to think of like kickboxers and stuff like that. Like, I mean, 
people always say Bruce Lee and Chuck Norris, but I mean, for me, even though they had impact on me, I, I, and I, and I know the impact they had on the martial art world. I, I they, they're not my Mount Rushmore, to be mm-hmm. honest. With you. I think they were ahead of their times, but that's fair. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think they're only ahead of their times because they were early. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I think if you looked at some of the things that they did now, would probably be so far. It's like looking at an old computer, <laughs> you know. <laughs> let me think. Gosh, I'm gonna go. Let me start to fight a point fighting person. Ah, I'll give you. Mm, I do him. I'm trying to think. Early '80s, who some of the point guys were? Did you well, know, like Steve there's, Nasty there's a, Anderson? Was that was he in your time? Was he before you? No, he was. He was definitely in my time. I, okay. Actually, so a guy that had an impression on me that he said a lot of things to me. His name was Harold Barrage Scorpion. Okay. His name was his nickname was Scorpion. So he fought Steve Nasty Anderson. He fought you know Billy Blanks. He fought you know Ray McCullen. He fought all those guys. So he's a he's an old time Chicago dude. But for me, um, I'm trying to think of a take one. There's a Oh my gosh, this, I, there's so many that are going through my head. I'm trying to dis- distinguish who, even like, you know, like kickboxing. For me, again, Benny Yurkidis was just this guy that was, I mean, he, to me, was legendary. You know, I know mean, Bill Wallace was kind of fancy, but you look at yep. Benny Yurkidis, what he was doing was just like the speed, the power, the, the, the tenacity. He was just, he was a monster. <laughs> he was a monster. So um, i trying to think of a, like a, a Taekwondo person that really, there's a Korean fighter, his name is Ha. Tae Kyung, he lives in Atlanta, Georgia now. He won an Olympic gold medal in, in 88 and 92. And he was, if I'm not mistaken, he was the only Korean fighter that fought fin weight, which is the lightest weight category, to heavyweight. Wow. And, and when he won his gold medals, one was at you know uh, 54 kilos and one was at 80 kilos. Wow. So like big difference, you know what I'm big saying? Difference. Like yeah. me, I stay in my lane. <clears throat> Herb, he stayed in his lane. Mm-hmm. But Ha Tae Kyung is... One of these guys that was was pretty special and kind of I think maybe some old old school people know and not that he had the best technique or mm-hmm. the fastest guy because there's some serious good ones. Let me think of who else. One more. Let me get one more good one. Okay. So I gave Benny's Jeff for you know, kickboxing, you know, Barrage just because he was kind of cool to me. Uh, Johnny. You said you were a boxing fan. Any boxers you want to throw? Man, yeah. <laughs> I got too many good ones, but <laughs> I think uh, for me. As much as I think that Floyd Mayweather is the best ever, mm-hmm. I think that uh, for me, Sugar Ray Leonard, nice. because interesting enough, he, he's kind of, <laughs> please, I'm not putting myself at all in his category, but in a <laughs> sense of we went to the Olympics, we we're the young, cute little guys that people knew were good, but they always questioned whether we could have the, the battle, you know, mm-hmm. and then we both kind of went away. And then we came back, you know, and he had, to, you know, when he came back and would fight the, you know, the big guys and stuff. And he just, uh, feel like he, even to this day, if you look at him, he stayed active. He could still move. He still stays fit. You know, I don't know something about him. I just, when I was growing up, he was just that, that icon of a boxer. You know, I can remember the Franklin commercials, you know, I remember watching him on ABC wide world of sports on Saturdays with my parents, you know, I mean, I just, I like him and I, and I listen, I love Julio Cesar Chavez. I love, mm-hmm. you know, you know, of course, uh, Thomas Hearns, Marvin Hagler, nice. you know, definitely a Mike Tyson fan, you know, mm-hmm. in retrospect, in retrospect, not maybe not necessarily during the time, because, you know, a lot of people jumped off his bandwagon. I think I love the way he rebounded his life. You know, I like Felix Trinidad. I mean, there's just so many good ones. But if I, for me, the best ever Floyd Mayweather, even mm-hmm. though he was crazy, dude, just I, his his ability to win and to to not drink to not smoke, to not get distracted, to always be training, 
to have these master game plans, to have zero ego when it came in the ring. Like he never got tempted to try to knock people out. If he could just say, you know what? My hands are soft. I'm going to find a way to win and I'll just, I'll break these guys later. I think it's just a genius, but nice. my favorite would be, would have been Sugar Ray Leonard. Okay, cool. Yeah, that's a solid Mount Rushmore. All right. How about a favorite martial arts book? Uh, Sun Tzu, The Art of War. It's a good one. That one's been picked a good amount. Has, hasn't been picked in a while though. So nice. Yeah, that, Book of Five Rings is good as well, yep. but those two, I, now I got them. I'm looking at them right here. Oh, nice. <laughs> those things are all underlined and highlighted to death. Very cool. How about a favorite martial arts video game? Are you ever a gamer? I'm not a gamer. No? I'm not a gamer at, at all. I know. I'm like, I'm like the one of those guys that not, I'm, I wasn't an Atari. I wasn't in television. I wasn't, I, wow. I'm not, okay. I'm not good at any of them. All right. No worries. How about a favorite martial arts TV show? I mean, this new Cobra Kai has <laughs> gotten everybody. I mean, yes. I, I think it's hilarious, I but I, you know what? You know what I liked? Honestly, mm-hmm. I like Kung Fu. Okay. The original. Okay. The original. And I'm going to go even back. I'm not sure how old you are. Do you remember a Westerner called Billy Jack? Oh yeah. I remember the Billy Jack movies. Yep. Remember him? Yep. His movie. I mean, it was a, it, you know, take off his boots and he fight. I, I don't know why I always remember that guy too. Yep. <laughs> it was fun. That's cool. All right. Well, Hey, that's speaking of a movie, favorite martial arts movie. Okay. Favorite martial arts movie. Mm, oh, this. <laughs> uh, the last dragon. <laughs> nice. Very good. Yeah. the last dragon. I love it. I love it. I mean, you know why? Because there's so many pop culture, uh, you mm-hmm. know, uh, phrases in there, but I mean, so yeah, obviously, you know, I mean, it's, it's it's not like uh, you know enter the dragon or any of those yeah. kind of things, but I mean I, I I like that. Let me see if there's another one. There's, Shogun of Harlem. <laughs> yeah, Shogun of Shogun of. Um, and I knew Ernie Reyes Jr. and Ernie Reyes Jr. Senior, yep. Ernie Reyes Senior. So then I've spent much time with them when I was young, and even since then, nice. um, so I knew them. I you know yeah. Ty Mac, I met him a couple times in Canada. I'm actually trying to get Ty Mac on the show. Ernie Reyes Jr. said yes. I just haven't got him scheduled yet, so I'm hopefully have Ernie soon. But yeah, I'm trying to get Ty Mac. He'd be fun to talk to. So I'll tell you a quick story about Ernie Reyes Jr. So Ernie Reyes Jr. When he was young, we did you know they did demonstrations and stuff like that, Mm and we used to always all hang out together a little bit here and there. And so one day when I first moved to Miami. I don't know how he got a hold of me, but he went through that phase where he was doing Muay Thai and he got really buff and big. And, yep. you know, he was just, I, I think I'm putting words in his mouth, but he was always a, a demonstration guy. And I think he wanted to be a fighter. I think he wanted to show people that he could fight. You know, he did, he wasn't just some forms and demonstration guy. So anyway, he got into Muay Thai. He fought matches. I mean, he trained and all of a sudden he asked, could he come out to my house? I'm like, okay. I mean, this is before cell phones, this is everything. And so I'm like, okay. Comes out to my house and uh, we're, we're catching up. You know, he comes to my training, he just gets in the back of the line. He tries to, you know, get through the training and stuff like that. We go back to the house and, you know, he's like, I said, do you want something to eat? He's like, no. Guy would eat, like pick up an apple and eat an apple. I'm like, all right. He's like, I'm going to go for a walk. I'm like, okay. Guy'd be gone for like six hours. I'm like, where'd you go? He's like, just, just walking. I'm like, okay. He told me about a movie that he was doing called The Rundown. You know, Dwayne Johnson? Yep, the Rock. Rock. I'm like, yep. and, and I'm like, no, never heard of him. This, I'm talking like 96, 97. I'm like, mm-hmm. 97. I'm like, no, nah, never heard. Years later, I'm watching the rundown, and here goes Ernie Reyes. I'm like, he told me about this movie. I remember this movie. I'm like, oh, my God. So, yeah, I mean, Ernie is uh, 
you know, Ernie was a good guy and spent a little time at my house. So yeah, if you ever talk to him, ask him about that one. <laughs> I will have to do that. Nice. That, that's awesome. Yeah. I've, I've had a really good friend of his, uh, um, Carmichael Simon on the show. Yep. So, yep. yep. Yeah. And I, I met Ernie and his dad back in, uh, at the diamond nationals. They were there promoting surf ninjas. <laughs> surf ninjas. There yep. you go. Yeah. Great movie. Yep. All right. Final, yep. final question. Now this one doesn't have to be a martial arts movie, just a favorite movie fight scene. Oh man, I thought you were gonna say favorite movie. Favorite movie fight scene? Yep. Let me think this through. Oh shoot, you're giving me hard ones. See, because I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go corny. Okay. Because like I know there's all these people going John Wick type stuff, all those different fight scenes, and maybe there's something I'm thinking about. Hey, I had I, like a, I had a guest pick the Princess Bride for favorite movie fight scenes. So oh, wow. <laughs> anything I goes. <laughs> I was actually gonna say some of the Kill Bill ones, but you know what That's, I really like? Yeah. You know what my favorite fight scene is? Yep. From Bronx Tale. Oh, okay, nice. You know, so you know, what I'm talking about the bar room, yep. right? When he goes, now you can, now you can't leave. When those uh, the bikers came into the bar, it was just a uh, you know kind of a, a I don't know if you ever seen the movie. Oh yeah, but um, yeah. So when they, I just thought that was kind of a cool, but kind of iconic. But really, the other ones I go to is uh just the uh the Rocky the Rocky movies like probably nice. like probably Rocky three with Mr T. Yep. I mean, I just I just like the. The symbolic part of you know Rocky being at the top of his game and, and maybe lost his edge and Clubber Lang being from Chicago and you know rah, rough and and you know Rocky having to go back to that Apollo's gym you know that I've told you I kind of coined my gym after like you know I always said like you know look around this room and there's guys that have never been on the national team these guys will fight anybody any place you know and the national team athletes from around the world come to peak performance and my guys you know take them tooth and nail you know and they'll never leave florida but they can they're scrappy and i just you know i think those all those rocky scenes are just kind of uh you know fun and motivating and good versus bad and oh yeah good triumphs that's good nice <laughs> so, i love that. it's a great answer all right before i let you go anything that maybe i forgot to ask you or anything you want to get out there just and, and i'll put links for your school and everything on the website when yeah. the show comes out but anything i maybe you want to get out there last minute no, you know, I, I would just say that, you know, if for me, I've been fortunate with my career, you know, and I think, you know, a lot of people, you know, view me as, a, you know, this American guy that has worked hard to, to build the sport in our country. But I've also been fortunate enough to, you know, coach for the, the Mexican Olympic team. And, you know, I've been working for the Brazil Olympic Committee for the last, you know, five years. So, nice. you know, I, I think I've been in a, a pretty unique situation to not only do things for this country, but spread things out and give, you know, people my, again, my philosophy and my experiences, you know, throughout the world. And I think that's, it's a sign, I, I believe it's a sign of the times because Koreans did that, you know, back in the day when they left Korea and they moved all over the world to spread the, the gospel of Taekwondo to everybody. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there's not a whole lot of non-Koreans doing that. You know, there's, there's, there's some, I'm not saying I'm the only one, but there's not many people that have been able to, um, to do that or replicate their, their philosophies and their, and their training regimens to, to fit other, you know, other countries. And so I'm really proud that I've been able to do that and just build, you know, the peak performance network. I mean, I, I love, obviously I'm a, you know, born bred American and uh, do anything for the country, but it's also been a, a big honor for me to, to be entrusted from other countries, you know, to, to help them develop their programs. So we, as of the last Olympic games, we've developed five coaches, not just athletes, five coaches for five different countries, you know, at the Olympic level. That's and that's, cool. yeah, I kind of have a, a lot of pride in that because 
and heck, I, I've got coaches that some, you know, sometimes they're outshine me right now, you know, and I, and I, I feel really, really good about that. You know, mm-hmm. I told you I'm a little bit, as much as I am old school, I'm really new school in the sense of I need to make people better. I mean, I fail if I don't make somebody better than me. And so that's what I'm striving to do every single day. Every I single love day. It. I love it. And I, I love what you're doing and, and hopefully you keep doing it for a long time and continued success. And I, I can't wait till uh, the episode comes out. Thank you. I hope so. Well, I really appreciate you reaching out to me and giving me the opportunity. It's, it's always fun to talk and reminisce about things and I can talk for hours. <laughs> so, <laughs> so thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist. We hope you will join us every week for a brand new episode with a different martial artist telling their story. If you enjoy the show, be sure to leave us a review. Also, be sure to check out our website at everydaymartialartist.com. There you can find all of our episodes and contact us to suggest guests and ask questions. Again, thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist, and we'll see you next week.